Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Academy Award winner Roger Christian, who is returning to the podcast to talk about his work on the original trilogy, including Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, as well as The Phantom Menace, and his directorial debut, Black Angel. It is always such an honor to get to talk to Mr. Christian, and this episode we are really able to dive into his much-anticipated documentary, Galaxy Built on Hope. I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 137. Roger Christian returns. I'd love this to kind of be a continuation of our last conversation four years ago, five years ago at this point, and really hone in on the work you did post the original Star Wars, as well as discussing what you're doing now, really honoring that and and bringing a lot of stories to light. First start with just Black Angel and everything you did there, because it's still just such a important part of Star Wars history, but also movie making history and, and, and your history. And how did that project begin? And how did you find your bearings as a filmmaker, as a director in that moment and for that film? I'd always been fascinated by King Arthur. I grew up with it and myth and legend and everything. And then it focused it a bit more with George and Joseph Campbell. British government had a £25,000 grant that they would give a filmmaker if the film was tied to a release of another film. And when I'd written this myth, and it was a kind of homage to Kurosawa. Basically, I was trying to be Kurosawa using Scotland instead of Mount Fuji. And and a Tarkovsky I loved, and I I wanted to connect like a myth myth to the subconscious and everything. So I kind of planned all this out. And then sheer accident, I was at the studios with Bill Rowe, who was the best sound mixer in the world at the time, doing Ridley was doing Alien. So I'd called him and I was sitting in because I was basically learning from the best. Sandy Lieberson, head of Fox, turned up and said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've written this short film and I can't afford to make it at film school. And he said, send it to me. He sent it. I faxed it. That was There was none of this other communication then. And he called me the next day and said, do you mind if I send this to George? And I said, no, no of course not. I hadn't thought of that at all. He said that George was fairly upset at them in London with the short they'd put to go out with Star Wars. They should make one and use the government grant to fund it. And Sandy said, we've got down to two, but we're not really sure about them. Can I send yours out? And it came back the next day. George said, tell Roger to go and make this. No one's to see it. I'm the first one to see it. Let him make his film. That was it because it connected through mythology to Star Wars. And that's what happened with my £25,000. I I could afford a Volkswagen loaded with camera equipment. There were nine on the crew. That was it, four actors. And we headed for Scotland like a ragged bunch of cinema revolutionaries. And I, I had seven days and I could only shoot one shot sometimes at a time. I've managed to get a couple of rolls of film and the rest, Gary Kurtz and George, gave me all the short ends from Empire Strikes Back, which are the bits of films left over. So there was a whole mix of different types of film. And uh, somehow we made this film in Scotland's just incredibly mythic landscapes that no one had ever put on film before. Nobody. This was what was the Thing that helped me to create kind of my own mythology. And so that went out in like four or 500 cinemas with Empire Strikes Back. And I got letters from all over the place, all over the world saying I touched their hearts and I touched their soul. And I realized that 
I'd done something to connect in, in the same way that George had done. Then it got lost. The negatives got lost, you know, and I kept being asked to show it to people. And I thought, you know, that 25 years later, I thought, you know what, it's slow, it's paced, it's made at the time. I'm probably better that it's lost and people remember it, you know, until one day I got a phone call saying, are you Roger Christian? I said, yeah. He said, did you, what was the company you made your film? And I said, it was my own company, Painted Lady. He said, I've got your negative. By the time I got up off the floor and said, who are you? What are you talking about? And he said, I'm, I'm the archivist at Universal Studios. We have all these negatives here in storage that came from the UK and you're B, so you're near the front, I'm calling everyone to get it out of here. And within days, by absolute destiny and coincidence, I got another phone call saying that they'd restored one of the Star Wars. It was an independent company in San Francisco who restored movies. And they said, we read about Black Angel in Wired magazine because they did a, an article on its influence in cinema. And we'd like to restore your film for you. And uh, they did. I got, the negative went to them. They restored it. And the first screening ever in America, actually, apart from George screening it, I think, for Steven Spielberg early on, was at the Mill Valley Film Festival. A young kid turned up from Scotland saying that, his father took him to the cinema when he was five years old in Scotland on one of the islands. And he saw this film before Star Wars because he went to see Empire and he said, it's been in my head. It's burning. I, I didn't know if it was real. I thought it was a dream. I've all these years. And then I read and I suddenly, and I've come here to prove that what I saw was real. And he invited me to Scotland. He said, I've, I've talked to the government and they've put up a tiny grant, if you don't mind driving with me, in round four cinemas and we're going to do Q&A and show it because Scotland felt they owned this film. And it went in the Glasgow Film Festival. It went from a 100-seater to a 400-seater. It filled up. And then a BBC article that was done, an online article, went viral. And it went viral. This whole thing suddenly blew up beyond anything I'd ever expected. And we're now almost a million hits on YouTube on the and things. So I'm now doing the feature. Changed a lot because it's like 40 years later. So I had to change the whole thing. And I went back. And unfortunately, the, the a woman stood up at Glasgow Film Festival and said she was the original producer of Game of Thrones. They made the first pilot in Scotland, where I did. And she said, you know, it really influenced it. And then I thought, you know what, they own this world now. They own the dusty winter world that we kind of emphasized. So I'd look like I was copying them. So I've gone back to my origins of, of a desert world, which is where it really should have been shot if I could have ever afforded it at the beginning. I'm doing it in Morocco, shooting, doing what we did on the first Star Wars. I'm echoing that, going back and making a kind of spaghetti Western medieval epic. I've got Toby Kebble, who's a fantastic actor. He's playing the lead for me. Jackie Cario, who's done 160 movies, French actor. He won the highest award in France this year. And he's very well known now for this TV series, Patriot, and the missing that he, he made in England that was a huge hit. So he's playing my kind of sorcerer in it. And John Rhys Davis, who we all love from Ghibli on Lord of the Rings. Those are my core cast there. They all love the script. And so we're just waiting now for the finance and their availability because Toby's on a big series in America.
and then we'll make it finally. Now I remember when that article first came out and I was like, we rediscovered the film and it really was kind of one of that last memories. One of the last like legends of the original trilogy was really kind of brought to life during that time as well. You were able to return to the Star Wars universe with Return of the Jedi. What was that like for you starting your career and, and being so hands-on with the formation of the universe and then coming back to it when it was culminating, when, when the trilogy was finishing? Do you have any memories of that time and what were you kind of learning as, as still a young filmmaker and as still someone honing their craft and learning as much as they could? For me, it was always a joy because it's such a part of me and my history and my world and my culture, Star Wars. It's And the struggle to get that first one made for everybody, and especially the art department. It was a joy when George called me and said he was doing second unit. He wanted to spend more time with Richard Markman on the first unit. So could I take over? You know, it, thank goodness I'd done a fairly difficult... Well, it, the second short film, Dollar Bottom had won an Academy Award as Best Dramatic Short Film. So that kind of gave me a bit more confidence as a filmmaker. I'd made the sender and they said, can you come? Can you come up tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm wasting. And so I walked in <laughs> to a massive battle scene on two levels with eight cameras running, stunts, everything. And Robert Watts just said, look, George has got to go. Just take this over and get this shot done. This is what happens. And uh, so I just walked into it. It was a kind of natural progression for me. And the world was there and I was back in Star Wars. So I kind of embraced it. Then I got put on Ewoks and George <laughs> did dance scenes and celebrations. And I was, I had Jim Henson with little babies in nest dancing. And I was bossing Warwick Davis around, telling him to do somersaults and things. And after 10 days, I said, George, can I just do a second unit shot? Like do some switches. And he said, no, no, I love, I think in his head, he was planning the Ewoks special. So I <laughs> got, <laughs> but you proved both with Star Wars and then with Black Angel and with, with Jedi, and then later with Young Indy and, and then with Phantom Menace, you were trustworthy and you, you understood the vision. And I think that's what even we were talking about when you were talking about the future for Black Angel. Like you and, and George and that whole team and world are so aligned and are so on the same wavelength. I think that's very interesting as a through line because that is a, a very unique person and a very important perspective to have to be successful in that world when he was doing phantom menace i was mixing a movie up in san francisco up in oakland rick mccullum had contacted me i'd never met him but contact me over a credit somebody wanted in the art department we had to sort it out he said come up because george wants to see you and i had a day off the sound mixer went down to get the oscar for the english patient so I had two days off. So I drove up and walked in. I met Rick. He said, oh, come on, George wants to see you. And, and so I went in the office and it was very touching from George. He said, Rick, you know, there were only five people stood by my side on Star Wars. And Roger was one of those. And that was very touching to hear that, obviously, because I did. It's true. I said, look, who's doing second unit? And, and they said, oh, Ben Burt's going to do a few shots. We really don't need it on this one. So, you know, and I said, just put my name down would you? So, <laughs> I'm back in England. I get a phone call. I was working out at the gym. Roger, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just <laughs> doing exercise. He said, can you drive up now? This was Rick. Were you serious about what you said? And I said, you know, I'm serious. I, I love this world. And I, it's not just, it's not because I want work. I've got to go back and do this whole video 
release thing for the movie I was doing and everything. And he said, no, no, you, you come up now. And I, this is where what you were just saying comes into play, because I sit down and they said, George and Rick, <laughs> and they said, well, can you do the second unit? Uh, and I said, yes, of course I can. You know, I, I offered on purpose and I would love to. That's not a question about it. And I said, you know, Here's the difference. I said, I've learned this now with my own second units on movies that they all want a job. So they're all trying to impress the producer and they're not doing what you want. They're doing things that they think will get them work. And I said, I've narrowed it down to how do I get what I need for the film? It's not ego, it's what the film's needed. And George said, well, how do you do it? And I said, well, I, at a and one I have a little camera and I go and shoot bits. I have a clamshell, which is an old Sony portable viewer. And I'll show, I go and they talk to me and everything. And George said, buy those, Rick, right now. And it's because there was a huge trust on, on Jedi and because of what I've done. And I think like George... I've always said on the first one, he never rejected a single prop, gun, weapon, set, anything that I ever did, because I understood without dialogue what he wanted. And I think that was very important. So they say, can you start now? And I said, well, I was supposed to go to Vancouver and do this. And they said, no, no, if you're going to do it, you've got to start now. Right, we're going to give you five minutes to make a decision. And they left me on my own. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, and I made one quick phone call and I thought I can the DP could go and do what I had to do. And so I said, okay, we're starting. They said, come with me. Next door was my office and an assistant already set up. <laughs> and it's then I understood where this all comes into play because there was 12 weeks shoot for George. And in fact, he couldn't be there for the last week. Well, this film needed 22 weeks. <laughs> it's a big film. They'd kind of divided it in half. And, and the second unit my unit had to be first unit about five or six times. We had to go into sets first because of scheduling problems. So they, we had the two young indie crews. So they were very, very versed and really great crews too. The best I've ever worked with. My DP, Giles Nutkins, leapfrogged with David Tattersall doing the indie films. So they knew as well. I didn't have to explain to them. They were well-oiled crews. We went in often setting the lighting and the tone for what was to come. And I think that's very important. Then George asked me, what are you doing in October? And I said, I'm here. I'm doing this. He said, good, because I have to leave. You're going to have to finish the last few days. I think I shot the last five or eight days. I wrapped some of the actors. I wrapped a lot of stuff. It was indeed a trust in that I wasn't going to try to do anything that wasn't required because George is very precise. He's a very good editor. He knows exactly what he wants. And we figured everything out beforehand. It was the film that mattered, not my ego, not what I was trying to do. Yeah, it really I actually to prepare for this interview. I, I watched Phantom Menace last night and uh, I, I guess I haven't watched it like on 4K uh, before. And I, I, right. I, I mean, I, I grew up with the movie and I love the movie and I, I was really watching it kind of differently this time and really thinking about like, oh, like insert shots or, or scenes that, you know, might have needed to be second unit or things that don't seem second unit but 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 are you know like like 3PO and R2 you know like the things that you're like oh like that's so integral to everything and it really it really I was watching with my wife and I was just like this is a, a miracle movie this really is just like everything that comes together is so beautiful and really does hold up over 20 years later and I'd be interested in just your experiences again returning to that universe 
and having the opportunity to really hone your craft again, but but also just help George. Were there any scenes that stick out to you even now or, or things that really um, you're very proud of even looking back on it? The first one, I told the crew this when we arrived in the morning and I said, what we're doing today, you have to realize is Star Wars canon. And we shot R2-D2 meeting C-3PO for the first time when that classic Carrie Fisher line, you know, naked? What do you mean naked? That stood out. But I mean, I shot a huge amount of the pod race, all the crowd scenes, things like that. I got one very special moment that it was the sunset when Darth Maul leaps off during that fight and he lands in the desert, just plants himself. And you're looking at him from the back. That shot I did, that was a fight because Amy Leibovitz was there to take her photographs and she wanted the sunset. And I, I was saying, no, the movie has to take precedent. And she and I and our assistants had to negotiate the way out of that. I got it and she got it. And I got a lot of the fight scenes with Darth Maul, which for me was fantastic. I mean, you know, and shooting and, and the Dave Park playing Darth Maul is an exceptional fighter. He's a sixth... Dan in two different fight techniques, I think. Stunts that he would do that were so easy, the stuntmen couldn't do. I, we had one huge one that I had to go to George and said, none of the others can do this. What do you want me to do? He did it, Ray. And he said, no, no, I'll put it in post afterwards. Just keep going. You know, I got to shoot Liam Neeson. I got to shoot Natalie. I got you and I mean, I was shooting with, and they gave me most of the Jar Jar Binks scenes that weren't with the main actors and Watto. I, mean, I was I was shooting a movie. It wasn't like I was having to do switches and background scenes and pieces. We were we were actually shooting full on movie. But you know what? Nothing really had changed since that first movie it was still the same atmosphere on set you know George didn't have studio executives hounding him it was his decision everything there was a very calm quiet focused attitude on set the whole time there were no arguments on Phantom Menace not one that's fairly unusual <laughs> and it was you know, the Star Wars world had then become such a powerful kind of entity in itself that everybody was very focused and there to help bring this to fruition. And it was the same world that I'd experienced on A New Hope, Jedi. I mean, it, it nothing really had changed. It was just much bigger. And, and we had more blue screen that Rick McCallum said that once when I, I had one of the big stages at Lewiston completely surrounded in blue screen and there was a piece missing and I called I said we gotta <laughs> reset there's more blue screen in this studio right now between you and George than anyone's had in the world I think and I said well look it's missing look who camera so we got our other bit what really brought the focus to me and the change was ILM and John Knoll was there all the time with us and everything was pre-visualized. They were there by our sides all the time, focusing it. And it was a great learning experience for me on dealing with blue screen and, um, and effects and stuff like that. And helping the actors too, because it still was in its growth period then. You know, they're often acting to a blue wall. The direction and the actors and the crew and everything coming together to make a story that feels cohesive and feels not from a blue screen is truly a miracle. I agree. And it's now coming back into its own a bit. It got a bit, 
you know, hammered during the time and because of Jar Jar and things, but that's all turned around. And I knew it would eventually because it's a fantastic film. You know, just the pod race alone is worth the price of admission to cinema. Watto is the first fully integrated CGI figure in cinema history. You, nobody questioned it. He's there. He's just flying around and talking and everything. You know, these are these are landmark moments in a movie, really. Without Phantom Menace, we would not have any Marvel movies right now. We would, You know what I mean? It would not exist in the scope that we're currently experiencing. And your documentary is a great indicator of the impact of especially the first Star Wars. And I'd love to touch on, because I went and listened to our last interview, from 2018 and you were talking then about how excited you were for the documentary and what you were working on and like the things that we were really trying to do because i was right after cinema alchemist had come out i believe and i'm so excited that now it's available and i tell the listeners what this is why it's different and why it's kind of an integral part of the behind the scenes canon that we have already going back to phantom menace i was at the uh, july picnic on skywalker ranch and david west reynolds came hurtling down to me and said, Roger, you know, you've got to write this book. You've got to write Cinema Alchemist. I've been through all the archives. There's nothing with your name. There's nothing with John Barry. Nobody knows anything. I've been through every single bit of information I can find. There's nothing. You, you know, George was busy making his movies. You've got to put it. So I did. I, I wrote Cinema Alchemist, got it out. David just continued <laughs> and said, this is as a Star Wars legacy. It's not in any of the making of, none. We're not even mentioned, John and I, because nobody knows that story. It's taken a long time to put it together. And I finally got financed through here, through a company, Ideal Entertainment. Um, so it's Toronto-based and a Los Angeles producer, Stephen Neer, a company called Wardour, who do a lot of cinemas. They do special effects and other things, so I'm part of that. So Ritu Sharda here, she financed it. She believed in me, and she said, no, you're just going to make this. It was much like George was told on the first one, just make this film. I was just getting set up, and I was going to fly all around, and interview everybody. It was all done, and then, and then of course, COVID struck. <laughs> I was landlocked for a year and a half here in Toronto. So being me and thinking the same way that I've always thought, I thought, right, I, I'm not going to give in to this and make this small. I'm going to make it bigger. And I found a, a virtual studio in Toronto that make a lot of kids shows and they use gaming technology which was like a a, a fantastic kind of gift i had paul bateman who was my ralph Macquarie voice because you know ralph embraced him and ralph taught him how to paint and he knows every story that, about ralph that I, uh, no one else knows he, a huge amount so he painted me virtual sets in the style of Ralph Macquarie. So I'm in the desert with the Millennium Falcon. I'm inside the Millennium Falcon. We, we had all sorts of things like that. I put together into the studios. I had David West Reynolds. I got all of the footage because he went back to Tatooine in 95. So I blue screened him. They shot him in, in America and I blue screened him into uh, theater here where I'm sitting with a screen and we're discussing everything that he found and what it was and how I did it, everything. So it's really enlightening about the origins of Star Wars, the cantina, the, he, you know, he found my skeleton that we left because we couldn't afford to bring it back on the first one. He found it, the bones. I have all of that, these stories in there. And then I also, you know, <laughs> 
Fox wanted so much money then because Fox owned it when I did it. They wanted so much money for some clips. And I kept thinking, these clips have been seen a million times. There's a better way to illustrate how we made it, what I was thinking. So Wardour Studios created for me, and I, I designed them all, some animated sequences in there, which show how I was thinking, how the influences of Excalibur, of Japanese sword fighting, all these things. So they gave a nice kind of flow to it. It was a bit like Star Wars. It was me and an editor, really. That was it. And one cameraman. And then Guillermo del Toro offered he saw Star Wars when he was a wee kid and went round the block four times and saw it again. He couldn't believe anyone could make a film like this. And it's made huge influence on him as a filmmaker. I chose Gareth Edwards to be throughout it because Gareth really Rogue One with the Star Wars fans. It's the most like that first movie, true to the Star Wars origins, I think. So Gareth gives huge insights. So do Guillermo. Kyle Newman, who made Fanboys, he's giving me insights. So I, I managed to get, I really focused on making everything that I'd been asked. How did I create all the sets out of aeroplane scrap? How did I make the lightsaber, the blasters, the R2-D2, C-3PO, everything like that is detailed as a legacy. And we decided that fans love Blu-rays, Still, there's always a suspicion it goes onto a onto a streamer that it's going to disappear again. So it was decided we put Galaxy first off as a Blu-ray and everything in it like a special edition. So that it's two and a half hours of all that you can want to know what I've been asked about how this universe was made. It's a legacy, as, as David West Reynolds. By the way, I dedicated the film to John Rinsler because John was a huge help to me and he edited my book. And then every time I was writing, it was John I sent the scripts to. He helped me focus things and gave me lots of insight and information, you know, and I, I've got, I managed to get a quick interview near the end before he got too ill just we managed to get something so at least he's there but i dedicated the film to him because i miss him um, i miss our phone calls we spoke all the time john and i and he was not only an exceptionally talented writer and individual but he was the most wonderful human being it's officially launched on may the 25th which is Star Wars Day in America. It's went up on May the 4th. It's kind of there now. It's kind of uh, filtering its way. And we're just starting to do promotions and stuff now for it. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> it's taken a long time, you know, and a lot of legal stuff and everything because I couldn't tread on anyone's toes. It had to be my story that was, as David West Reynolds said, and he's a major part of this. David, the major part of the documentary. Um, as he said, this is a legacy that everybody wants to have, to know how did you do it? And it's only going to increase as a next generation. My son here is eight. I mean, just Star Wars is everything. Not because of me, it's, it's Star Wars. I go into the mythology too. And I go into why it's connected to the world like no other film, what George did. And it's a kind of my gift to George, really, that he's the creator of all of this. And we owe him a huge amount. The world does. You know, he gave the world something to believe in. I'm just so glad that the story is out there. And again, the last time that we talked, I highly, highly recommended Cinema Alchemist. 
what a fantastic book. And then I cannot wait to watch this Galaxy Built on Hope. Then people can go to galaxybuiltonhope.com and just see all the information about it more than we even discussed and also purchase it. And Mr. Christian, thank you again for coming back on and being such an early supporter of the show. And, and you and Mr. Rinsler were both one of the first people I A, reached out to, but B, that said yes all those years ago and and both have been such inspirations to me and I really do appreciate your time and your passion yeah you know there is a reason this connection to the world especially now you know that it's it's that the light does defeat darkness it's not being taught anymore in schools this is a replacing he, and George had the advantage because of Joseph Campbell to create a perfect myth, which he was able to do in cinema for, you know, and I, I just constantly remind people he made them for nine-year-old children. That was George's ideal audience. And George has told me many times, it's not my fault that adults like them as well. <laughs> but, but, but he brought back, you know, the family cinema. He's brought all of that back. And I think it's a very, um, and there's some insightful kind of things about the true meanings behind Star Wars. It's, it's, there's one in Return of the Jedi, which is very important for people to understand, which I haven't seen done before. And there's a lot of different aspects to the movie that is why it's, you can find a Star Wars doll in a Chinese village, you know? And Africa, everywhere. It's very important. So I'm continually supporting this. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's next, really, because I, I don't want the world to end. I guess Black Angel is a part of it because that I spawned my directing career because of George. That was a thank you to me for standing by him. And um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. so much again to Mr. Christian for coming back on the show and telling such wonderful stories. If you want to catch the first part of our conversation, head all the way back to episode four, whoa, where we initially dove into his career and the fantastic props and sets he helped to design. For more information about Galaxy Built on Hope and to order a copy for yourself, head to galaxybuiltonhope.com. And if you want even more, be sure to pick up the latest issue of Star Wars Insider, number 211, where I interviewed Roger for the magazine. But that's all for now. Until next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.